This is Pete Moore. I want to tell you about a company that is going to change the entire recruiting in the Halo sector. The company's called GamePlan. We are GamePlan.com. What they do is they connect employer brands with D1, D2, D3 athletes across the country. They power the software that allows these employers to get in front of tens of thousands of athletes. If you watch the NCAA tournament, the hustle, grit, preparation, determination, and absolute desire to win embodies every athlete out there. Now you're going to be able to put your brand in front of those athletes, start to get them to understand after their college career, they can get into the halo sector, go work at a studio, a health club, fitness equipment company, supplements, anything related to this industry, they can now parlay those skills and bring it into the sports and fitness industry that we are going to have the best athletes become the best employees and create the best companies. And that is the future of Halo. One, two, three, Halo. We are gameplan.com. Check it out. This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of having Katie Richardson straight from Knoxville, Tennessee. We are hosting this at the Summit by BFS Boutique Fitness Solutions. We're going to talk about Neighborhood Bar, B-A-R-R-E. It's open early. It's open late. No pain, no champagne. Katie, welcome to the show. Good to see you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So I read about your background. So you uh, you had a great job as a, a auditor. Oh yeah, sounds like a really inspiring <laughs> thing to do when you wake up in the morning. Yes, it was thrilling. Yeah, and then it sounded like you you didn't pass your CPA, but it sounds Her- like that was a blessing. It was. I mean, there's been so many things that have happened along my journey that it's just. Especially when you say not passing the CPA exam, let's be clear. I thought I was going to outsmart all of my peers and take what I felt were the two hardest parts at the same time instead Mm. of taking them. It's because it's four parts. So I'm like, oh, I'll just knock out these two parts real quick. And then then it's downhill from here. I failed them both by one point. And that means I got a 74 on both sections, so. Well, the fitness industry appreciates that yes. uh, that, that one point, okay? I appreciate it. Yes. So, you know, did you do bar before and, and you decided to start on your own or was this kind of your own creation, not anything related to something you were doing in the past? That's a good question. So my main background um, growing up, I, I cheered and I cheered all the way through college. Mm-hmm. And then Um, kind of relating back to like weird things that have happened to me to kind of land me on this journey. My junior year of college, I was dropped just warming up in practice in a basket toss, um, just kind of like a freak thing. And it gave me a severe whiplash injury, shoulder injury. um, And then I rehabbed back from that. And then one year later on the exact same day, so it's October 8th, one year later, I was dropped again. No. Same people? Um... No, okay. they, I'm small. I'm only five. Do not leave your house on October eighth. I, I didn't. The next <laughs> year, I was so every freaked year. out. Right. I was like, this end. Even weirder, October eighth is my due date. Like, what is that? You know what I mean? Wow. So, but anyway, I was dropped again, and it re-injured my old injury. It wasn't as severe as, but because I had the old injury, it did. And so, I was done cheering at that point, and I was also done with those traditional type of workouts at that point. So, I was very lost for a couple of years, and then. Um, my mother actually convinced me to just start doing yoga, which was not something I'd ever done before. So I was in my early 20s and 
I realized like, oh, I really like this. It's a better workout than, you know, I thought it was going to be just because I had this preconceived notion that it was just old people stretching, right? Mm -hmm. And I loved it and I loved the instructor I found. And so anyway, that started my journey of just finding those non-traditional low impact workouts that I could do and actually feel better because mentally I was not in a great space because I wasn't able to exercise and I was just kind of lost and didn't know what to do. So that kind of shifted to Pilates. Then at that point, um, I was really into yoga and Pilates got certified to be a yoga instructor, um, got my job as an internal auditor, traveled all the time. And then around that time is when bar started to become kind of this scalable thing in the South because I was in mm. Alabama and I'd never heard of it. Is, um, that, is that from the Pure Bar expansion is kind of what yes, you first saw? Yes. Pure Bar was the first time I ever saw a bar studio. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, went to a class, but I didn't get a membership because I was on the road all the time mm-hmm. and traveled two to three weeks um, a month. So I popped in, took a class, but continued to just have my gym membership where I could just do these other group classes. Then um, occasionally if I would travel and there'd be a bar studio, whether it was Pure Bar or Bar Method, you know, you start noticing it once it piques your interest. Sure. I would pop in for a class here or there. But to be honest, I'd before I started Neighborhood Bar, did not have an extensive bar background at all. And one reason, when I decided that I wanted to leave my auditing job and go into fitness, I didn't want to be influenced by what someone else was doing, necessarily. Mm -hmm. I wanted to find the style of bar that connected the most with me, and then research it. I had that yoga teacher training background um, and start to build my own program without too much outside influence to feel um, kind of like locked into a box, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So, yeah. so did you um, did you build your first studio on your own, or did you go straight to franchising? I built my first studio on my own. So actually, I moved. I identified three markets where I felt like there was um, no brand awareness at that point, mm-hmm. um, and they were also within four to five hours of um, where I was living at the time. Which, so, which uh, cities was that? So I looked at Asheville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Knoxville, and then um, the suburbs of Atlanta, like Cumming and mm-hmm. Marietta and Alpharetta and things like that. Were you that. still doing your auditing at that point? Or when you I was doing, doing the research, yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, and then things in Knoxville just fell together very organically, and I didn't want to fight that by trying to continue to dig into these other markets. I just kind of went with it. And once I had a lease worked out, I put in my two-week notice, and I ended up moving to Knoxville in August of 2011 and opened the first studio, the first neighborhood bar studio, um, towards the end of October of that year. So you've got a pretty unique background. Like, you don't see many auditors go in and start creative bar programming. So did you have any other influences around you? Um, did you really take a look at the numbers like other people probably don't uh, because of your background? Or how did you think about that? Or did you say, hey, look, I'm going to build this. I know what I'm going to do. And it's going to work out because it's not, it's not October 8th. <laughs> right. Um, I should have opened my studio on October 8th. That would have been ironic. But um, it's it was a combination of both, right? So it was a combination of just looking at the numbers and knowing what I needed to make. Mm-hmm in order to cover my overhead, and then what I needed to make in order to pay myself. I saved all of my paychecks for 
as, or as much of my paycheck as I could for about six months mm-hmm. um, before I quit my job. I um, practiced my like original neighborhood bar class on my little brother for three months every day because he was moving into my house as I was moving out. So we lived together for a few months. Mm-hmm. So he was my little test dummy, which is pretty funny. Um, and and so I, I kind of like worked out kinks with what I was going to actually be teaching at the same time that I was doing some of those financial things. And I was, my audit, the, the audits that I did were more operational, mm-hmm. which in hindsight too was a blessing because it gave me insight into all different areas of a business, um, more than just the financial part of it. But then to be honest, and I think a lot of people would say this, once you get into it, it's, it's on the job learning yeah. and you don't have to have everything figured out before you. I feel like, um, well, some people come to us and they say, Hey, I've got, um, I've got five studios. None of them are the prototype. Um, but the sixth one's going to be, and I, you know, I need to read X, X amount of capital. It's like, well, you got to kind of live in it and like figure out Absolutely. what the special sauce is. So what are some of the things when you started that you had some aha moments, whether it was, you know, the layout, whether it was the, the class times, whether it was instructors, whether it was um, adjacent, you know, tenants that you'd want to have. What are some of the things that st- stood out to you as, okay, this is where this is going and this is what I've learned? The I think the most common misconception is if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. And that was the first aha moment is that's, I mean, people get, if that happens, you get lucky and you have to let people know that you're there. And I, um, you know, I had to figure that part out. And luckily I got connected with some good people who helped me mm-hmm. connect me with the right types of things. For instance, back then it, it wasn't Groupon, but it was like living social or something oh, like yeah, that yeah. was living huge. Social, yeah. And that was the first thing I did. And it was like, boom, all of a sudden I had these clients, right? And then you have to figure out that next aha moment, most clients are not self-serving in that they're just going to love it so much that they go home and they buy their package. Like you have to talk to them. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and if I think of myself as a client, I would be that way too. I would go home, given the price point, might think of a million reasons why I don't need to spend that money because by the time I've gotten home, I've forgotten how much I love the workout. Mm-hmm. Then maybe I'd trickle back in a couple months later and then maybe I would buy a package. And so it's just kind of figuring out that whole, like, you know, customer acquisition part of it because mm-hmm. that was not something I had previous experience in. Um, but, you know, like I said, you figure it out. Like, you figure out what works, what doesn't, um, and what the clients need from you, and you figure out what people love about it, and then you use that to acquire new clients, you know, through testimonials and through what people are saying to you. Um, so that, that to me, was the biggest aha because I had I had no background yeah I see a lot of studios um you can just see you know from their marketing expense line one it should be called marketing investment not expense two is you know you spend like five hundred dollars or fifteen hundred dollars then you look at some of these health club chains and they're spending anywhere between six to eight percent of revenue like a planet fitness will spend fourteen thousand dollars a month on advertising Okay, so if I'm competing with for those types of clients, I've got to figure out, okay, what percentage is not a thousand dollars on an SEO campaign for me, right? So when you look at your franchisees now, are they mandated to do certain things? Are they is it optional? Um, how do you kind of run the franchise and how do you feel about allowing other people to deliver your programming and your content with also being able to sleep at night? Right. So um 
Content, I'll cover content first because it's kind of a shorter answer. We have a really intense teacher training program. The entire program is around five months long, but we don't tell instructors that necessarily when we hire them because we do it in levels and we break it up and make it digestible for those instructors. Um, We get them on the mic teaching before they've completed that full training training process um, because we do it, like I said, in level one and then intermediate, and then we have advanced classes. Um, So, and I would say for the most part, a lot of the franchisees who buy into Neighborhood Bar, they do it for two reasons. They do it because of the sense of community and like just the overall vibe of the brand. But then the fact that the workout is super structured and really does deliver results. And it's, it's traditional bar, but with just a little bit of a twist that makes it a little more dynamic and keeps the clients a little more connected to the class than, you know, than some other methods. So, and because that's why they buy into it, they're really great about making sure the instructors are delivering it. And we have master trainers and all that stuff and we check in. So um, that's the, that's easier. Okay. The, um, the marketing side of it. We do in the FDD have mandates that we require um, franchisees invest a certain amount of money Um, We say monthly, but it can be over the quarter and just averaged out monthly. Now, it's funny because I had this exact conversation last night. When the pandemic hit, we were conserving dollars like everybody else was. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. not unique. And it was like cut every unnecessary expense. So what we've done over the past two years in lieu of just, you know, fluttering away dollars into the World Wide Web space or or whatever is really focused more on um, tightening up our sales funnels and our conversion process and watching those conversion percentages grow so that around this time, hopefully when the energy of the pandemic is changing, we can then make smarter investments with the marketing dollars. We've got those conversion numbers up pretty far above industry average. Uh, Some studios way above industry average. So then that money actually does more for our businesses instead of just having it there as a requirement, right? Uh, so you're talking about the the uh, ad fund, correct? Well, the or ad you're talking fund, about se- those yeah, separate. the ad fund's different. So we do also collect an ad fund. We use it for a lot of just consumer-facing um, franchise projects. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we did, we launched a brand new website. We provide, you know, video, social content, things like that. So one of the things that, struck me when we were um, investing in a similar business was um, you sell unlimiteds Mm -hmm. and then you have the same people that basically hoard all of the the primetime classes and there's typically you know in a bar class the way we had the studio set up it was you know 20 to 22 people in a class and then we had a separate studio that was um, that was doing some plotting but at the end of the day we could only put like 25 people through the studio on on a uh, hourly basis. So over time, you know, what, what's your setup right now? What's the maximum? And then when does it kind of lose the, the personal touch with the, the instructor that you say, okay, it can't be this big because we're not running a Zumba class and I want people to pay for this and I want them to, to get, you know, this kind of personalization. Right. So I think the, the whole trend with boutique fitness, I mean, I've been in it now for 10 years. It's very different. It was very different when I started compared to where it was pre-pandemic. And then where we are now is feels more similar to where I started. Hmm. And 10 years ago, we had smaller classes with higher valued clients. And it was more of that true boutique experience. 
over the years, as competition came into all of our markets, there became this kind of, there became a price war, right? Mm -hmm. So now it's like, and we never bottomed out our prices to be the cheapest or anything like that. But when a national brand is coming in and charging unlimited $20 less a month than you are, you kind of have to budge a little bit to mm -hmm. retain. So we did that. Maybe in hindsight, we shouldn't have. Um, but our client value started dropping and the number of people in class started increasing, but we weren't necessarily making any more money. Right. And there were times in one of my studios that we would shove 30 people in a class, and then during the pandemic, we were capping it at like eight. Yeah, yeah. And then when we increased our capacity up to 12, 12 felt crowded, we're like, how did we ever get 30 people in here? <laughs> I mean, I taught a class one time with 34 people in this room. How, like, how did they even fit? So now, We've just in the past month taken our, taken our capacity back up um, to around 20 participants in a class. Now that's, you know, that's in my market in Knoxville and most locations I think at this point have also taken their capacity back up to kind of that pre-pandemic level. But maybe if they were at 24 before, they might be at 20 now. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just a little bit smaller to give people more personal space because it's so crazy how you just feel like you're shoulder to shoulder now, even though we used to have like five more people in the room with you, you know, or more. Um, so it's been interesting to see that the pandemic did weed out some of those lower valued clients. Um, and so our client value across the board has increased, but we're back to less clients at a higher value, mm. which isn't a bad thing because I think with all of the work we've done over the past two years, we're kind of ready to really identify our, our ideal client, which is that higher value client that stays with you long-term versus someone that's on that quick churn and really go after that person um, to fill the open spaces in mm. class. What, I want to get your, your take on this. A lot of studios, I would say, 50% of the, the square footage is, is the classroom, and then 50% is, you know, some retail and apparel. You know, the front desk is probably bigger than it needs to be. Um, there's a big waiting room. Maybe there's some showers. And if I think back, and I'm, Solid Core is probably the best example of you walk in there, there's like a table like this, mm -hmm. and then there's 14, you know, reformers, and there's no showers and if you think about like revenue per square foot or like workout space per square foot, you know, that, that's really what it should be. But mm -hmm. what, what have you seen? Because in retail, I've been in the health club industry now for like 25 years and nobody makes money on retail. There's like two groups that do. Um, so what's your take on that? It kind of seems obvious that you should do it because you got a retail store. But at the same time, you know. It says it's 100% margin when you when you buy it and you sell it, but for some reason it's never that. No, it's never that, um, especially when you start making deals on the side, you know, just because you're trying to get rid of old retail. But right. to answer your question about the square footage, it's funny that you say that, and I was smiling because my first studio, my lobby was way too big. My desk was way too big, mm -hmm. and that was the only studio that we built that way. Mm -hmm. Now we have much smaller desks, much smaller lobbies. Um, we maximize the retail space as much as we can. Um, and I will say um, a lot of our franchisees, myself included in this, have been very successful with retail. Mm. But it's because you listen to the clients, you learn what they like. Now, don't get me wrong, I went through years of 
you know, I felt like I was making all of this money and then my tax return comes and I'm like, what did I spend? What did I spend this yeah, on? Yeah, and you got like $20,000 worth of like shirts. Yeah, right? and, and so what you're saying is like my, um, my take home, my margin on the retail was not great. And again, that's your on the job learning, right? So you mm-hmm. learn. So we sell a lot of branded products of neighborhood bar tank tops with, you know, all of our fun sayings on them, except my... My parents will not let me print a piece of apparel that says butt on it for I hope your day is nice as your butt does not go on clothing. Um, But, you know, no pain, no champagne, all that stuff. And it sells really well for us. And from the corporate side, what I've been able to do is find these printers that give us really amazing margins so that we, even if something's on sale, are making a really healthy margin on those products. Now, the catch-all there is they're lower price points. You have to sell a lot more, but your investment's also less upfront and your take-home margin is more. Um, But we really try to work with the franchisees to also build the retail portion of their business because I'm I mean, I'm proof, and a lot of other people are too, that it can be awesome. I call it bonus money, Mm -hmm. but you can also get yourself in trouble with it, so you have to be really careful. Um, Luckily, there's been a lot of new retail brands that have come on the scene. Uh, We have a great partnership with Free People Movement. Oh, nice. And um, really good relationship with the reps. Um, Oftentimes, because, because of our size, you know, I think also scale can be power. They give us a lot of times like a discount off of wholesale to increase that margin a little more or allow us to do an event where we give everybody 20% off, but our margin is still very healthy. So um, I think, you know, it's my job to continue to negotiate things like that to um, help the franchisees to have the best opportunity they can have to turn the retail into a good business. Mm -hmm. Trunk shows, that's another thing. I would suggest that for people who don't have that negotiating ability yet um, is to contact these retail brands and ask to do a trunk show because you are zero risk. You are only paying for the items. You just get a percentage of the You only pay for the items you sell. Oh, I got you. So you bring in the trunk, you display it, people can feel it, touch it, try it on, and um, place their order. And you just have to make sure where you can get in trouble is if the rep accidentally sends you pieces that have limited inventory, things like that. So you always confirm with the rep before you charge the client. I think we've all done that the wrong way before. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, that's a good way to to test out your retail business or grow your retail business without an upfront investment. Gotcha. So how many years in to the one studio that you owned and said, okay, this makes sense. I understand how it works. Now I'm going to franchise it out to other people. What was the timeline between? So it was about three and a half years. All right, that's good. That's what I want everyone to listen to. Three and a half years, not three and a half weeks or three and a half months. No, Okay, good. Thank you, Katie. (laughs) You're welcome. Continue. I had a second location. So I had opened a second location in 2014 and then started franchising in 2015. And when you... Just so people understand this, um, a lot of people come to us and say, I want a franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very positive people, and they don't realize that if you're in franchising, you have to say no a lot, right? So how many franchisees come in and you say, look, I'd love to have you. I know you're passionate about Neighborhood Bar, but I can't sell you a franchise. So I think our approach is you know, a little bit different. Slow strategic growth, and a lot of the original franchisees came from within. Okay. So that's a little different. It wasn't just going out and trying to find 
someone to expand the business. It was using people that already understood the brand and already loved the brand and the concept and could be great ambassadors for um, our mission statement and everything that we stand on. Um, so that helped. And I'll, I would say still to this day, a lot of the franchisees that have a touch point with Neighborhood Bar at some point. Now getting to where we are now, that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. But we have, the vetting process is really, do you vibe with our personality mm -hmm. or not? And having that initial discovery call, which I was doing for a long time, I've had, um, I had help with sales in the past, I did a really dumb deal with a broker that, you know, flew into Knoxville, Tennessee, not like it's anywhere fancy, right? And wined and dined me and made all these promises, um, got out of that contract real, real easily and mm -hmm. really fast when I realized that in that year I spent, you know, $60,000 to make 50 and thank God I made 50 or that money would have mm -hmm. just been down the drain. So, you know, then got with somebody who'd split off of one of these types of groups helping me and he taught me a lot and then I did it on my own for a little while and now I have Jesse. She's sitting next to me, but we're on audio, so no one can see Hi, her. Hi, um, She's doing the vetting and the selling and um, also doing site selection and things like that. So it's more than just, our approach is more than just selling you a franchise. It's mm -hmm. when we decide that you're a good fit, we take you through also a mentorship process within the first 30 days and then a really in-depth onboarding process in every part of the company. So it's it's just like, it's not ever really telling people no. It's like, I think it's a mutual, not necessarily the best fit. Or if somebody comes in with just these harebrained ideas, it's like, we don't really do that, right, you know? Right. Um, we don't want necessarily someone to just say, oh, I'm going to come in and I'm going to open three over the next three years and just put a manager in there. It's like, that's not necessarily, we're not saying it wouldn't work. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily our model. You know, it's owner operator model. Um, and that's how you make the most money out of these businesses. And you having been in the business, I'm sure understand that too. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of private equity groups now that are putting money into whether it's restore, um, the orange theory area developers, um, a number of like, you know, super regional studio chains and some of the exponential brands are now attracting that. You seem like you have a lot of conviction and like, look, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna put my head down. I've got 22 studios over 10 years, right? Well, we actually signed the 23rd yesterday. Well, I wasn't aware of that. So like, it's not my fault for bringing that up. I'm, I thought I was in current events. Sorry about that. You're really close. 23, 23. <laughs> so, you know, as you think about your growth and you say, this is what I want to do, and I, I don't want to overextend myself. And also, I think some of the other bar companies kind of just started selling franchises. And, you know, you look at their website, and it says coming soon. It's like, how are they actually going to train people, manage them, make sure these studios are, are operating well? Because your franchisees are your referrals, yeah. right? And if, if you get 10 out of 23 are not saying good things about you, you're not going to sell 24 and 25. Absolutely. No. Um, I'm so glad you asked that question. You got I it. I was getting a lot of questions just at the summit yesterday about franchising and things like that from people who are interested in franchising their concepts. You know, the thing about it is this, and this is what also I learned along the way, is growing really fast unless you have an outside partner or investor to guide you on building that infrastructure and support system is the worst thing you can do. If you're doing it on your own, 
you have to be able to balance running your corporate locations, um, supporting your franchisees. You you have to be able to support what you're building. Mm -hmm. And you don't have the money to just start hiring people from day one unless you're being funded. And I've been self-funded the entire way. So I had to hire very slowly, very strategically, grow slowly, grow strategically, you know, within a certain radius of where I was so that it didn't cost me a bunch of money to support these people. And I didn't make a ton of money out of the franchising entity for a while. Now, there were like great years. It, it, franchising's weird. Like you'll make like a ton of money and then you like lose a little bit. Mm -hmm. Then you make like, make a tiny bit. And then, you know, it's just weird. It's not predictable at all because you don't know how many you're going to sell in a year and you don't know how much you're going to spend on support. You don't know what big projects you're going to lay out there. Um, for instance, like on demand, I invested everything I made in 2018 launching an on-demand site in 2019. So you just, you, it's how, how did that go for the last couple of years? Oh my gosh. Well, um, somebody said this yesterday and it was awesome. What, as soon as the pandemic hit, it was like, thank God we have on-demand, but the growth you see, it's not real. Like, it's fake. Right, right. Like, yes, people subscribe, but it's just this high churn rate. And yeah, it's like, uh, I was looking the other day, someone's like, um, I got this great on-demand business, like only 8% churn a month. I'm like, well, you gotta replace 100% of your people and what's your customer acquisition right. cost? Like, maybe don't spend anything on it. Right. And, and see what happens. So that's funny you say that because I spent a lot of money on it in 2020 because yeah. of the organic growth we had because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And then I ran all the numbers at the end of the year and I didn't really make that. Like I could have spent no ad money right. and probably made the same amount of money and saved myself those, mm -hmm. you know, phone calls, saved myself some time at least on strategy yeah. by just letting it go. Um, Do you think at some point, you know, you just say, hey, look, the on-demand, it's not really like separate, but I'm going to raise your unlimiteds by $10 and, you know, it's really worth $20 a month or something to like, add incremental value into the membership package and just say it comes with it? Or do you think it's still going to be like a separate purchase? So I think you are up to date on current events because that's pretty much our exact pricing right now. Yep. Our members can add on for $9.99 yeah, so. it's $19.99 a month. Um, but, you know, some people... In-studio group fitness people are not necessarily motivated to work out at home. They mm -hmm. are coming in a studio because they don't have to think about it. It forces them. You know, you, the motivation at home is not the same as it is when you have people around you, when you have an instructor correcting your form and things like that. Sure. It's just two different groups of people. And I, I think the digital crowd is going to always have a high churn rate. Now we do live stream as well. And I will say it's amazing that we still have a group of clients that are dedicated live stream users. And I think it's just, that is different because they are engaged. They take the class actually live. Mm -hmm. Now we pivoted to more of a live. Is it, is it two way or they're just? It is two way. and and. During the pandemic, it was just an instructor. Sometimes you'd have one or two people with you. Right. You know, I would pay my instructors just to show up and be the like the demo people mm -hmm. so that they could still get a little bit of extra money and still get a good workout too, right, in person. So, and it's always been two-way. It's still two-way. Now it's just a more of a live feed. So we're just to be smarter about class times you can stream and um, not having to pay an instructor separately. You're just paying that one fee for them to service both. But it's not that many people on the live 
stream anymore. Right. So it's easy for them to do that. But we still do it two-way, and there's a dedicated group of people that still show up um, for these classes. We've, you know, cut the schedule in half from what it was during the pandemic because based on just need of the client. But there is a group of people that stay loyal to that, and they love it. And they're like, please don't take it away. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, I don't have time anymore. My job has changed, this and that. So these changes this season of their life that they're in, mm -hmm. you know, they need that service, but they're more likely to show up to live stream than on demand. So one other question just on the growth, and I look through the locations that you have, and there's a lot of, you know, tier B cities, not in a bad way, just, you know, like they're mm -hmm. not New York City, L.A., um, Miami, Chicago, Dallas. Um, was that on purpose or is that just kind of where the franchisee leads came from? I wouldn't say it's necessarily on purpose, but we learned a lot opening up in Nashville and Arlington that just because now, not always, but in some of these highly populated metropolitan areas, you don't necessarily make money because it's so expensive. Right. The rent is so expensive. Mm -hmm. You can still only charge so much for your services. And back years ago, when people were able to charge $300 a month for bars, sometimes more, mm -hmm. it was different because they could charge in accordance with their market. But when the influx of competition came in, you know, you, you can't. Some people can. Um, we weren't able to do that and see a lot of success. So How come the gymnastics people still get to charge like 300 bucks a kid right. per month? Right. Can we like just use their business model and then we could like solve everybody's problem? Maybe we should just open gymnastics. For, I did Maybe teach. That. I taught kids gymnastics in oh, college. Oh, you're doing cheering. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've got a little experience. Yeah, yeah. And you get like a warehouse instead of like class. Yeah, the back, like in too. some industrial park, they're like shipping yeah. out of like uh, Amazon, you know, distribution as like a gymnastics right. right next to it. But I mean, to get more specific, those um, small to medium sized markets, the profitability is typically in our for neighborhood bar mm -hmm. is a lot higher. And that's just how it is. And I really think a lot of times, you know, getting in a big city is sometimes just a notch on a belt. It's great brand awareness mm -hmm. if you do it right. But that doesn't necessarily set somebody up for success. And so getting into a low overhead, you're, you're just not as stressed out if right. you're not filling your classes. And you don't necessarily have to fill your classes to make money if your overhead's not too high. And it's just in general, like, less stressful, um, less money coming out more money coming into your bank account. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at this point too, coming into the industry when we did, these smaller markets that are outside of big cities too, they've got a little bit of awareness of what bar is. So we're not having to completely educate the market. Right. In some cases we are, and they're they're hungry for it and they want it. And it's like, how exciting to have a boutique fitness bar studio, mm -hmm. you know, in our city. And they show up, they're loyal, they're high value clients. And it's just been a really good direction for us to go. That's awesome. So, um, you know, if you got a quote, a favorite quote or something that you tell all your employees and partners and, and members, like oh, that's a, that's, that's a Katieism. Um, you got any good, or, or words of advice for someone who's gonna foray into uh, franchising? Well, I, um, I use quotes a lot. When I do um, newsletters or emails to the owners a lot with different quotes, but you know, the past two years was really tough and I ended up winning like a pretty cool young entrepreneur award in Knoxville. And I ended my speech with this quote that is so true because, and it also goes with the advice you would give somebody 
looking to get into franchising. And it's a Thomas Edison quote, and it's um, vision without execution is illusion. Because mm. it's easy to have these ideas, but you have to understand the amount of work that has to go into bringing those ideas into fruition. It's not if you build it, they will come. If if you dream it, you can do it. And whereas mm. mindset is so important, you have to understand the amount of work that goes into um, to building a business, any business, whether you have one studio or 100, it's so much work. Great. Well, I'm glad uh, you made it into the industry. You're now a Halo evangelist and, uh, and you got your award. Um, so we hope your day is as nice as your butt. We're going to tell all of our audience. <laughs> That's trademark, but it will not be on any apparel as per <laughs> the Richardson clan, right? Yes. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. Great to meet you, and uh, hope uh, the next 10 years are even better than the first 10. Yes, thank you so much for having awesome. me. It was fun. Good to see you.